just wanted to introduce tonight's speaker. This is within the Prabhu. He joined ISKCON in his native Switzerland at the age of 15 years old and became one of the most famous and dynamic bookseekers of Srila Prabhupada's books in the whole world. He was number one and number two for many years. And he travels the world. He's been sort of stuck in California for his lockdown, but he travels the world, gives seminars on book distribution. He's writing a book on book distribution. And he has spent time in Russia also. I thought he would be a wonderful person to tell us about the history of the Krishna conscious movement in Russia, which is a very amazing story. And at the end, we're going to have a kirtan from video of Russian devotees, which is very wonderful. So without further ado, let's welcome the face of the Vinayar Hare Krishna, everybody. Happy to be part of your Sangha, your association here. Thanks for inviting me. So, it's a very amazing story how Krishna consciousness started in Russia. It's like a miracle. The Srila Prabhupada spoke a lot about spiritual communism. If you go through his writings, you will see like he spoke quite a bit about spiritual communism and he was always concerned about sharing Krishna consciousness with the whole world. So several devotees had tried to get Prabhupada to Russia. Many had failed. But Shyamasundar Prabhu is the one who actually pulled it off. And how he did it was he had one letter of a professor in Moscow who said that he would be willing to talk to Prabhupada. And he went to the Russian embassy in Mumbai with that letter. And he said that this is an invitation for a conference. And we have to go there. <laughs> and somehow he sold them the story, you know, because Shyamasundar Prabhu is a very persuasive kind of a person. So somehow on that, just that letter of appreciation, he got them five days visas. And they were to go on an organized tour, because that's the only way how you could get into Russia. And they were arriving there in Moscow and Shyamasundar didn't know, but when the custom official opened his suitcase, there was a Bhagavad Gita and a, and a easy journey to other planets in his suitcase. And both books fell on the floor and there was a lot of pictures inside and they fell on the floor also. So the custom official was very embarrassed. Shamasundar said, we got to go to prison. This is, this is it, you know? They've, they've found out who we are and we're going down. <laughs> and this is bad news. But 
the custom official was so startled and so uh, embarrassed that he just threw everything, including the books, into the suitcase and just said, go, 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 you know, just let them go. One person kind of took notice, but, but he just sent them off. So they were in, but they had to stay in that Hotel National, which was very close to the Kremlin, to the Red Square. And obviously the tourists were going on different tours to see different sites, but Prapa was not interested in that. So he just stayed in a hotel and sent Shyamasundar out to get groceries. So Shyamasundar had to stand in line and wait to get different types of items to cook for Prabhupada because they couldn't eat the hotel food. And they would go out for walks. And you have these famous pictures. Shamasundar Prabhu bought one of these cameras, you know, that are like these, I don't know what you call them. They have one film inside and, and then you throw the camera away. You know, you take the film out and it's like a disposable camera. So it took about 20 pictures of Prabhupada walking around uh, Red Square and the Kremlin. And they met Professor Kotovsky, who was a firm atheist, but he was the chair at Moscow State University for Indology and Eastern Studies. So that didn't really bring much of a result. But then, while Shyamasundar was out shopping for groceries, he met a Indian boy who was intrigued by a foreigner running around. And so they started talking and he invited him to meet Prabhupada. And he brought a Russian friend of his along. Initially, they asked Chiamasundar because he's from America, if he had any blue jeans that he wanted to sell them, you know? <laughs> Because back then, that was like a real, a real status symbol, if you had blue jeans. So they, he brought them to Prabhupada, and, and Prabhupada talked to them, and especially the Russian boy, Anatoly, he was like a sponge. He was just soaking it all up. And within just a few days, Prabhupada gave him the full download, like literally the entire Krishna conscious philosophy and practice. He also cooked feast for them. And within just three days, that boy had become fully convinced about Krishna consciousness. And he started practicing. And later on, he was in regular correspondence with the devotees. Also, the, uh, so that was in 71. Then, Next step forward, the um, Anatoly, he got initiated by mail, Anantashanti Das, and he asked Prabhupada if he could marry a foreign wife that would help him in uh, spreading Krishna consciousness. So Prabhupada arranged for one of his disciples from France, um, her name slips my mind. I'm sure somebody can remind me. And she agreed to marry this boy that she never met in her life. So she just flew to Moscow. And uh, they got married. 
And she told him straight out that it's not going to be a romantic relationship. <laughs> I'm doing this just for service. It's strictly business. I just, you know, and, but I'm going to help you spread Krishna consciousness. So he started preaching and sharing and people started copying the books by hand. There was, you have to know, there was no Xerox copies. There was, everything was completely controlled. And you had to watch your every move. So then they started distributing books in small, in small scale, just by hand copy and by, by word of mouth, so to speak. And people were really intrigued. Different devotees were visiting, but only very briefly. Till 1977, there was a Moscow book fair. And somehow the organizers invited the Bhaktivedanta Book Trust. So Gopal Krishna Maharaj and a few other devotees, they went there and they brought a lot of books and they were not allowed to sell books. They could only display books. But somehow after the book fair, mysteriously, all the books were stolen. So <laughs> they had actually distributed them to, to the interested people. And so there was a book fair in 77 and in 79. So quite some books went in at that time. But things were slow and, and it was just spreading word of mouth and different people got interested. And every now and then some foreigner would come on an organized tour and share Krishna consciousness. But it was already spreading like wildfire. In the early 80s, Kirti Raj Prabhu, who was in charge of Russian preaching with the help of Prabhu Vishnu Maharaj, Niranjan Swami, Kopal Krishna Maharaj, Harikesh Swami, there was about half a dozen who regularly went to Russia and they would just go on tourist groups. And then they would just sneak away and have secret gatherings, secret meetings in, house, in, in homes. I mean, you can not call it houses because it was just small one-bedroom flats or studio apartments. And they had programs in there with up to 200 people in one room where they would just give them full dose of Krishna consciousness for as many hours as they could actually spend time away from the tour group. You have to imagine you're, you're being watched. All the tour guides are KGB agents because they're in charge to make sure that none of the tourists do things or go to forbidden places. So they go on a tour and then in the middle of the tour, they disappear. And then before the tour ends, they have to be back to get back at the hotel and to, you know, to be part of the group. Otherwise they would blow their cover. So that's how things were spreading. And they started, more and more people got interested and started practicing and they started copying the books. And then some of the devotees started printing books. Now you have to know, you can't just go to a printer it was completely impossible. So I have some friends who bought printing presses on the black market. Anyway, that came later on. 
uh, in Sweden, in Anvix, they had a small printing press who would print Russian books. And they would make them very small, like the pocket size Gita, even smaller, actually, like those pocket size Bibles, you know, really small books. And they would uh, put them in aluminum foil and hide them in the engines of trucks who would go into Russia in Scandinavia, you know, Finland, Sweden, whatever Russian trucks were there, they would hide books in the trucks. Also, all the ships who would go to St. Petersburg, they would be on the bridges and they would throw books onto the, sh onto the ships, onto the boats and hide them. And the, the Russian uh, customs officials were really mesmerized because books started appearing everywhere in trucks, in boats, in, <laughs> in luggage of all kinds of people who didn't know where those books came from. So in this way, books started infiltrating. When I got initiated in 1986 in Mayapur, in Gorpurnim, there was 80 seats empty of godbrothers of mine who got initiated in absentia, in their absence. They were in Russia, but they got initiated in Mayapur. Then mid-80s, the, uh, there was a big pushback from the government because they saw that this movement is growing, they're organizing, they're gaining grounds, there's thousands of people becoming interested, they're publishing literature. So they got very much worried and they started persecuting. They started arresting devotees, imprisoning devotees, putting them in labor camps, in psychiatric hospitals, torturing them, injecting them with drugs, beating them. Many devotees died in prison. It was a really bad time. We were carrying cards, like baseball cards, with the faces of the devotees who were imprisoned and their story. And we would make propaganda outside of embassies in Europe. And Sri Prahlad, who was then a Gurukul boy, they did this song, Mr. Gorbachev, you know, led them free. And there was a lot of tension going on at that time. Meanwhile, in Russia, some of my dear friends, they purchased the printing press on the black market and put it in the basement on one of the houses in the night. They had to actually break the wall. I mean, they took out the street light, broke the wall of the house, put the press in the basement, rebuild the wall, put the lights back and went into operation. Literally every thing from paper to ink to binding material, everything was controlled, but through bribes, they would gather all these materials and start printing books. And then with their own cars, they would drive all over the USSR and deliver those books to the different groups of devotees who started practicing. Now, this was a very dangerous undertaking. One of my friends said that several times he was apprehended by police and when they checked his documents and they checked the car, he just ran into the woods. He just had to disappear into the forest and ran for his life because otherwise he would be imprisoned and tortured and it would disappear, you know, if they trace it back. So 
I'm just making sure I'm not getting ahead of myself and I have it somewhat chronologically. Then in 1991 on BBC News, they announced that from now on, you can import religious literature into Russia. So the North European BBT printed 250,000 books in Spain and shipped them to Russia. But they were held at the border between Poland and Russia because the border officials had not heard about this new legislation, this new law. So the drivers had to wait there for two weeks. And then finally, they brought them and the books were kept in storage, in a government storage, custom storage in Moscow. And the devotees could not get those books out. And they had protests in Moscow. They were attending court hearings. There was only about 100 devotees at that point, full-time practicing devotees. So they were out every street, every day campaigning and demonstrating. And after two months, they released those books. So they finally got the books out and they started distributing those books. And from the 250,000 books that got distributed with the money that they collected in the next 10 years, they printed and sold 15 million books, 15 million. That's a lot of books. <laughs> so in 1991, you could say things opened up. There's also the first year when Russian devotees came to Mayapur. A whole plane full of devotees came to India and they came to Mayapur and Vrindavan. And at that point, the persecution was pretty much over and things started to normalize on some levels, but they were still very, very much grassroots and undercover in many, many places because there was no facility, no finance, no support. It was just, just an underground movement, an underground organization. So then from 1991, it was a rapid expansion all throughout the, what was former USSR and then became known as CIS, Commonwealth of Independent States, all the different uh, countries. And more and more devotees started visiting there and preaching there. And Krishna consciousness took, took roots. It, took, it got established. Still to this day, there is very few actual temples, very few big buildings. Mostly it's smaller gatherings. It's very decentralized. They still don't have a big temple that is owned in Moscow. And if you want to know about the Russian spirit of the devotees, I mean, I've traveled there from 1991 till a few years ago. So I visited Russia and the, and the ex-Soviet countries for 25 years. I went from Murmansk from the extreme north to Sochi and from St. Petersburg, Moscow to Khabarovsk, which is beyond, beyond Japan, just on the, all the way far east. You have to understand Russia is the biggest country in the world. You can fly 12 hours from east to west. It's 11 time zones, 11 time zones, one country. Like the U.S. has got 
three time zones, right? Or is it four? <laughs> Winston, four. Thank you. <laughs> four. Okay. That shows you how much I know about <laughs> geography. So they got 12 time zones, you know? So it's huge. It's massive. And there is Asians, there is Caucasians, there is Europeans, there is there's all different types of demographics. So very versatile, very culturally diverse. There's a big pushback from the church because the Orthodox Church, they have kind of a very strong grip on the country and also very strong ties to government. So there was a lot of obstacles in establishing the movement, in registering it, and in starting centers. They tried to ban the Bhagavad Gita. There was a big, huge court case. Finally, with the help of our Indian friends and the Indian government and the struggle of so many countless devotees, uh, it, it got thrown out. The case got thrown out. So Krishna consciousness is booming. It's expanding all throughout the former Soviet Union. In Ukraine alone, there's 15,000 devotees. In Moscow, there must be more than 10,000. So there is Russian-speaking devotees all over the world, in every country practically. And it's a great blessing. It's wonderful to see. When Prabhupada went to Moscow alone with Shyamasundar, with one Bhagavad Gita, he walked near Moscow State University, which is up on the hill, and he overlooked the city of Moscow. And he prophesied, he said that in this city alone, there will be 10,000 devotees. And it's kind of, you know, Prabhupada is there on a five-day tourist visa, you know, <laughs> meeting one professor who, who, who even feels embarrassed to meet him because he's so scared. And, and one Bhagavad Gita gets left behind, and Prabhupada already, he can see the whole thing, how it's going to work out. So when I travel and preach, I used to scare devotees and I used to tell them, if you're not going to distribute books, I'm going to call the Russians and they're going to come and they're going to distribute the books. And then they said, no, 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 don't send the Russians. It's okay. We're going to do the book distribution. <laughs> don't send the Russians. And now you have Russians in every country preaching, distributing books, full-time devotees. Many live there with their families and they become fully integrated in society. So if you want to understand the Russian mindset and mentality, there's two main key words that you have to know. Number one is smetana, which means sour cream. And number two is iskrinest, which means sincerity. So <laughs> with, with their sincerity and their dedication, they have captured the essence of bhakti. I was in Moscow for the 40th anniversary of Krishna consciousness of Prabhupada's visit to Moscow in 2011. And there was one old lady, like a grandmother type, Babushka. And so she got up on stage and she told her little story. She like, you know, almost 70. And she said, yeah, and uh, I had this gathering in my home and it was just the one room, but there was up to a hundred people there like a few times a week and I cook for everybody. 
And she was like the leader of that, of that group, of that cell. And all communication would run through her. And she said that at one point, her flat was raided by the KGB. And they confiscated the books and the pictures, but they found a letter that she was supposed to give to one of the devotees. And she never read that letter. But because of that letter, she went to a labor camp in Siberia for four years. And she was just talking about it, telling like, yeah, and then I went to Siberia for four years and I preached Krishna consciousness in the labor camp. And uh, people were really interested, you know, they were really intrigued. And, and then she came back and there was not one word of, of, uh, of disappointment or of frustration or of anger or remorse. And to this day, she doesn't know what was in that letter. So people are very sincere, they're very dedicated, they're frugal, they have learned how to survive with next to nothing. They've had it pretty bad if you know a little bit about history and studied some of the other wars and all the other different things that went on. So it's very endearing to see. In Mayapur, all the people who are building the Temple of Vedic Planetarium Besides the workforce on the ground, which is locals, Indians, all the engineers, the designers, the artists, everybody practically are from Russian backgrounds. So very dedicated, very hardworking, very sincere. So now there's hundreds of thousands of devotees and Krishna consciousness is spreading rapidly. And we're looking forward to these devotees traveling to other countries and reviving and revitalizing Krishna consciousness as the Americans and Europeans did it in the 60s and 70s and 80s. So that's my little spiel. That's my little <laughs> summary. I have many friends from there and many uh, very strong memories and impressions from my visits to the former Soviet Union and to Russia. It's a very endearing place. So I don't know how we are doing time-wise. Maybe we can open up for a few questions and comments. I mean, I can tell you stories till... Uh, <laughs> till the cows come home, but I don't know how much, how much, how we're doing time-wise, Sarva or Vincent. We're good on time. We, we're, we uh, you know, you should go until about eight o'clock, you know, give or take. So we, we've got plenty of time. I guess I'll, I'll start uh, with the question. Um, you know, it seems like in, in Russia or in the Soviet Union, you, you were saying how um, they were able to survive off of, uh, you know, very little means um, against, um, you know, oppressive forces. Um, they didn't have, you know, the infrastructure or the resources or the books, you know, openly available, um, no temples or anything like that. Um, yet they're able to um, get the word out and, and grow the movement um, it's such a huge country. Um, what are some of the, 
practical tips that um, that folks, you know, in the United States, you know, who have you know more resources, um, have the freedom of speech, um, the freedom to move around. You know, what can they borrow to to help um, their own um, preaching efforts? Thank you. Um... Yeah, we cannot duplicate, but we can extract the principles and then apply them locally. So what I see, what really has made a difference there is that, and again, I don't want to generalize because there's all kinds of people and all kinds of mindsets and all kinds of backgrounds because, uh, you know, the former Soviet Union is, is, is as diverse, you can say, as, 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 the, as the ethnic background and, and, and demographic in America, for instance. You know, like they got all the different varieties of people. But first of all, no entitlement mentality. Nobody thinks that somebody owes me something. The government owes me something. The church owes me something. My parents owe me something. They know it's not going to happen, okay? <laughs> they just, it's very clear from the get-go. And it's not like they're, they're like cynical or depressed or fatalistic, although there's a bit of a dark streak. Like if you read uh, Dostoevsky or some of their writers and, and you look at some of their, you know, uh, theater and, and uh, heavy, you know, heavy drinking and, and like that. But, but in general, people are very content, meaning that they're happy to be where they are, not just because they don't have any other options, but because that's just how people live. Whereas if you go to other places in the world, everybody wants to be somewhere else and they want to be somebody else. And it's kind of, annoying because there is no real traction because people are always chasing a dream they're always you know in their heads some other place they're not really grounded so if we can work on that drop our you know entitlement mentality and not trying to pretend or show off or try to be the best at everything but just be yourself, which is kind of refreshing because, <laughs> because, because when people always try to put on an act or to impress others about their, their grandeur, it, it becomes a little difficult to sustain relationships. And then they have deep, they're deeply spiritual. I mean, they have, they have deep faith in, in, the, in the potency of the holy name and of the movement. Just to give you one small example, when I was in Siberia, in Novosibirsk, in the January of 1996 or 7, it was minus 35 Celsius. I don't know what's that in Fahrenheit. Somebody can translate it, but minus 35 Celsius is way, 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 way below freezing point. So I got off the plane kept us waiting for about 20 minutes and just the, the windshield was so strong this is Novosibirsk the, the the capital of Siberia it was really literally hurting if you spit it turns into ice before it hits the ground so you're driving these little ladas these little cars and they all have 
spikes in their tires so it's like speedway you know because otherwise you drive off the road and we had a sankirtan meeting in the temple inside it was like sauna it was full-on heat and one devotee told the story that he went into the town to distribute books and he met another devotee who was distributing books and he asked him prabhu which temple are you from and that other person said i don't know any prabhu and i don't know any temple so he asked him, who are you and what are you doing here? He said, look, it's like this. Two years ago, I bought this Bhagavad Gita on this street from a person like you. I read it. It's the best book I've ever read in my life. And at the end of the book, Krishna says that if you want to become dear to me, you have to give this knowledge to others. So he went to the copy shop and he Xerox copied. Then it was possible in the late 90s. He Xerox copied a hundred copies of Bhagavad Gita. Can you imagine Xerox copying a thousand page book? I mean, that's hard work. <laughs> Somehow he bind them or he stapled them. I don't know how he did it, but, and he was going out and he stopped people and he told them, look, this is the fantastic book. It's the best book I've ever read. And it cost me so and so much to produce. So please give a donation. You know, I want to print more books. So that's how he distributed books. So I have a doubt. And you know that to have doubts is the sign of intelligence. Now I have many doubts, so that means I must be very intelligent, which is a joke, but one of my major doubts is, what if all of us lose it? What if all of us become too corrupted, too lazy, too fat, too useless, and we just give up this whole thing. I have that doubt sometimes, because as it's 2020, ISKCON is rapidly, I mean, not rapidly, but slowly becoming an organized religion, which is a scary thought. <laughs> and, and so a lot of things get institutionalized, and the mission and the missionary spirit may move a little bit to the back burner. So what is my doubt? My doubt is, is if, what if all of us become completely useless? We completely lose it and give up the practice. What happens then? But my solace is, I know that somewhere, someone in Siberia, in Patagonia, in Alaska, or in, in the desert of, of the Sahara will find a Bhagavad Gita. And they will read the Bhagavad Gita and they will get it and they will start printing and distributing the Bhagavad Gita and they will start, they will restart the Sankirtan movement just from one book. And I'm fully convinced it can happen because the whole tsunami that we have of Russian devotees and Russian preaching at the moment started with one Bhagavad Gita. And it's the same potency. It's still available. So getting back to your question, Winston, Prabhu, if we have a little bit of faith and we reduce our entitlement mentality and we actually innovate, we just work with whatever facility we have. And instead of trying to be somewhere else where the grass is supposedly greener, we just happy to be where we are and work with the people who we have around us and we just share Krishna consciousness 
that can make tremendous difference. Yeah. I don't know if that helps. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Thank you very much, Paul. Jai. You're welcome. Any other questions or comments? Nope. Got to unmute. How receptive were the uh, Russian uh, people to, um, to um, being open-minded about adapting to the vegetarian lifestyle? What, what type of challenges did you have there? Well, again, you can't generalize, but things were pretty uh, frugal. And even now, things are very simple. So a lot of people have to do with very little. And even though meat was a staple in their diet, their people are, I mean, when Prabhupada was there, it was very hard to get food. And uh, a regular day would look like when you're in Russia, in the morning they eat uh, kasha, which is uh, a one grain that's cooked, boiled, you know. It can be buckwheat or it can be oats or it can be, you know, millet, something simple. And then, uh, yeah, very simple. So people are, I mean, there's all kinds of people, but they're open to, to, to try things out. And by the power of prasadam, <laughs> the devotees are very successful in having restaurants and doing prasadam distribution and food for life that has endeared us to the Russian public in many places, even though the resources are very uh, limited, but they can, they can literally cook up fabulous feasts just with, you know, the, the main vegetables that they have is uh, potato, carrot, cabbage, and beetroot. Those four. They're all like winter vegetables because it's mostly cold, long winters, very short growing seasons. Then they have a few berries and they pickle a few cucumbers and things. But it's mostly that plus, plus uh, wheat. And in some regions, rice. So they can they learn how to make a lot with very little, so to speak. Yeah, people are open to it, but it's still it's still a struggle. You can say like uh, you know, like there, it's not like California where <laughs> everything's available and and uh, you know you can be a raw vegan and it's completely okay and everybody gets it. So. It's a different, it's a different landscape, a different demographic. But devotees have been very expert in adapting Krishna consciousness to the local tastes and the local uh, circumstances and to make it relatable. Like for instance, Indian cooking is, you know, very, very exotic for, for people in Russia. So they would maybe try it out, but it's not, the regular type of fare, even of what devotees eat in the temple. Because it's just not their culture. They're just not accustomed to that. But Krishna consciousness is not dependent on our dress or on our way of spicing or the way, you know, the lingo that we use. So 
if we learn how to extract the principles and adapt them to the local situation, it becomes much more relatable and easier for people to take up. So now we've had people who are in the fields of psychology, in the fields of medicine, in different, you know, other fields, and they're highly successful in sharing Krishna consciousness in secular uh, groups in a more contemporary language, in a more accessible way, so to speak. And it's like a funnel. And from there, then many, many people come to Krishna consciousness and become initiated devotees and take on the full-on practice. But they have actually had tremendous success in doing that. Besides having brahmacharis going out and doing Harinam and book distribution. So it's still a challenge, but they're making the best of it. Great. Thank you very much. Good explanation. We've got a, uh, a question from, from Jinnya. She asks, there's a high alcohol rate in Russia and they drink a great deal of tea. Was that difficult to overcome for the newcomers? And do you speak Russian? Yes, it's a, it's a great, it's a great uh, challenge because people literally grow up with alcohol from small childhood on there. It's just normal. Everybody drinks. I mean, it's not like here, here, if one person in your family or one person amongst your friends is an alcoholic, then it's like, you know, it's a big deal, right? It's, it's a big problem. But imagine if your dad drinks, your mom drinks, your uncle drinks, your grandparents drink, your neighbors drink, your friends drink. It's just what everybody does. It's just normal. You don't drink, you're the odd person. You're the strange fellow. <laughs> so, so they literally have to, you know, distance themselves from society and develop their own habitats, their own sangha, their own group of people, so to speak. Now in big cities, again, it's a little less, but if you're in the countryside, it can be very hard. It can be very difficult. And uh, I, I, can, I can manage in Russian because I spent there so much time and I took uh, the trouble and the time to learn. But, uh, you know, there's a problem also. Once you start learning a language, you start understanding everything that people speak. And sometimes it's better. <laughs> sometimes it's better not to know all the things that they speak about. And it's like the chirping of the birds, you know. And you can just so at one point I dropped it. Um, but it's you have to know how to get by by yourself, and you have to know enough to know whether your translator is actually saying what you're saying, or he's giving his own talk and he's going off in a totally different tangent. Like before this Skype talk, I just had a two-hour conversation with 50 Latinos and I had a Spanish translator. And even though it's very good, you know, if you miss the one crucial word in a story or in, a, you know, in the punchline, you miss that one word, you, you lost it, you know? <laughs> so one thing that you have to know is you're only as good as your translator. So keep that in mind. If ever you go abroad and deal with other language groups, 
make friends with your translator and make sure he gets it. Because you may be driving a Maserati or a Ferrari, but if he's driving a Lada, you are driving a Lada. That's what people perceive. You're as good as your translator. <laughs> so it helps investing a little time in relationships and being considerate. Some people like long, other like short uh, sentences. And uh, also to be considerate about their culture because it is not advisable to criticize government, seniors, parents, or any position of authority. It's not accepted and it's not considered cool. Here in America, people can say, you know, oh, our president is a this and that, and this guy is a this and that, and you know, they can rap and yak about anything and everyone. And nobody really raises much of an eyebrow. But in cultured society, if you confront any type of senior or person of authority or respectability, it's considered very impolite. It's considered very uh, unacceptable. So one has to be aware of the cultural norms and demographics that one is navigating in. And, and then that will help to, to, to establish relationships. I don't know if that helps. Thank you. Jai um, Baladev Prabhu asks, uh, does the current government present any problems to spreading Krishna consciousness? I would say right now it's more covert than overt. <clears throat> it's not like uh, so much out in the open. But when they tried to build big temple in Moscow, it was uh, not successful because of intervention of different interest groups. So <clears throat> India and Russia have very strong ties, economic and political ties. So this has worked in our favor. And Krishna consciousness is spreading <clears throat> at the same time there is pushback and there is restrictions, but devotees are very expert and very determined to work around those restrictions because you see, people just learn how to survive. They just learn how to get by. They just know that you can't get anything in, in, you know, it's not like you just order it on Amazon or you drive down to the mall, you know, <laughs> it's everything is a hustle, you know, anything that has to do with official permits, it's a, you have to employ a lot of effort to, to get things done. And so people have just accepted that as a reality. I mean, similar like in India also to some extent, or many of the Asian countries where, or Africa, you just have to be innovative, be tolerant, and uh, do what it takes to, to make it happen. But I would say right now, the, the government is more uh, neutral. I don't wanna say favorable, because favorable is a big word but I would say they're more neutral and more uh, 
permissive, so to speak. Thank you. Do we have any more, more questions for Navina Narada problem? Oh. Yes, Sarva. What is the difference between regular communism and spiritual communism? Yeah, well, regular communism means uh, everything's owned by the state, everything is dictated by the state, and everything is decided by a few people over the many. And spiritual communism means if we understand the verse from Bhagavad Gita, fifth chapter, text 29, that Krishna is the proprietor and enjoyer of everything, and he's the well-wishing friend of everybody. In other words, everything belongs to Krishna, everything is meant for Krishna's enjoyment, and Krishna is the one, he is the man, he's the one who is actually our friend and our worshipful object, if we know that and act on that basis, that is spiritual communism. So we put Krishna in the center and we understand that everybody has a different nature and a different talent and they can contribute that. And if we worship and please Krishna, that everyone, every part and parcel, we become nourished and pleased, just like if you water the root of the tree, the branches, leaves, fruits, and flowers will be all become nourished and rejuvenated. So in a similar way, in spiritual communism, every member and every section of society will thrive and flourish. Whereas in regular communism, I mean, you're wearing glasses, you know, so you, you would be in a high-risk group because you'd be considered a uh, intellectual. So <laughs> you, you have very high risk of getting deported to a labor camp, you know. But if you be a, uh, a craftsman or a farmer or a laborer, then you'll be, you know, you'll be considered cool. You're, you're, one of the, you're one of the bros. So they had different types of ideas. Of course, if you proclaim that everyone is equal, some people are always more equal than others, and they will, you know, then control others and exploit others. So, you, again, you get into a hierarchy and into a structured system so we can't do away with structures so Srila Prabhupada often compared that Krishna consciousness this Varnashram Daivi Varnashram system is actually spiritual communism because we are accepting that everything belongs to God and everything should be used for God's pleasure and that we are all sons and daughters of God so we're all family and we all share in equal rights and responsibilities to partake in God's creation. But we're fulfilling our different functions according to our social position and our, you know, psychophysical makeup. So this is actually the culmination or the perfection of communism. And because it is so perfect, many people who come from that background of that mindset of socialism can actually relate to Krishna consciousness very naturally and very easily. Where sometimes the capitalistic, uh, every man for himself, you know, let's crew everybody, 
uh, that mindset has a real hard time when it comes to building community <laughs> that lasts and, and keeping people feeling that, yeah, you know, we're actually interested in your benefit and we want you to grow and you to own this. So I would say it's not a big, it's not a big change of, you know, but being now here in America and seeing, you know, the cold war and all the, the tension that was there, I understand that there are certain issues and we can see that materially speaking, none of the isms are, are perfect or complete and none of them are going to last. And that's why unless we come to the higher platform of spirituality and we see how things relate in regards to the bigger picture, inclusiveness, putting Krishna in the center. Um, I mean, horrendous things have happened if you study history and not just, you know, history of capitalism, but also history of communism. I mean, Stalin and, and, and the sorts of, you know, Lenin, they have killed more people than died in all the wars together of their own people. So, and we're still struggling in countries that have adapted a somewhat communistic mindset. Uh, Nepal, West Bengal, Burma, so many states uh, have really bought into or previously were very, very strongly influenced by communistic ideas which are atheistic and very that have something to do with religion and spirituality. So that's why in a environment of you can say either secular or or more religiously liberal environment uh krishna consciousness has spread much faster and has expanded to a great deal 